please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, our passage for this morning, uh, for the third week in a row, is Philippians 4, verses 2 through 3. And let's begin by reading the passage together. Philippians 4, verses 2 through 3. The Apostle says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We have a saying in our household. The saying goes like this. You ask the wrong question and you get the wrong answer. You ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. And what that saying is meant to communicate is the idea that many times conflicts arise from a question that's actually raised from an unchallenged assumption, which is actually false. For example, people will often seek marital counseling. And the main question that they want answered is, how can I have a happy marriage? How can you help me enjoy my relationship with my spouse? And when people come to me asking that question, typically the first thing I'll point out is that's the wrong question. And I would, I would suspect that that question is actually at the root of your marital conflict. See, that question is based on the premise that the goal of marriage is to be happy. They're seeking self-fulfillment and personal happiness. Biblically speaking, that's a false premise. The goal of marriage is to glorify God. Meaning the question they should be asking is, how can I glorify God in my relationship with my spouse? Interestingly enough, you rarely, if ever, have a couple go to counseling who's been asking that question. And do you know why that is? It's because the couples who are asking that question first and who are attempting to live according to the answers to that question, they don't typically need counseling. That's because if you're living to glorify God instead of just simply seeking out your desires, then it won't take you very long to figure out that glorifying God means serving your spouse instead of trying to get something from them. That's what the person asking, how can I be happy in my marriage, is missing. They're not concerned with their spouse's happiness. They're not starting with the right question, which ultimately ends up becoming, how can I please my spouse? Instead, they're wanting to know, how can my spouse please me? Or even, how can you help my spouse please me? And that's the root of their conflict right there. It's based on the premise that they should be seeking their own happiness first. And the reason why they can't seem to solve their problems on their own, the reason why they keep having conflict is because they keep trying to find the answer to that question instead of realizing that it's the question itself that's fundamentally flawed. The goal of marriage isn't to be happy. The goal, rather, is to glorify God. That's what we mean by ask the wrong question, get the wrong answer. I have to confess I've been struggling lately in Philippians. I think I understand the passages just fine. But as it's come to try to present the material to you, it's really been hard for me to put together lately. 
And as I was wrestling with this week's message, I think I finally understood why. It's because I'm asking the wrong question. I've had a bad starting point, and it's been driving me in the wrong direction. Basically, I'm trying to paddle upstream. The passage is flowing in one direction, and in my explanation, I keep wanting to take it in another. You see, I fear man, just like anyone else. And I often have to fight against that as I preach. Meaning, I want to please people. I want you to like listening to me. And what that means practically is that I do the very best I can to make my sermons engaging. I'm not saying I try to entertain per se. I I think you all know that by now, perhaps painfully so. But all the same, I don't want to bore you either. I want you to know that I'm using your time well. I want you to find these messages interesting. And the way I typically try to do that is by trying to make my messages challenging. See, I might be able to get up here and tell you stories or maybe even share different kinds of trivia with you, either about theology or about the passage itself. And in the end, you might find that interesting. But if that's all I did, I wouldn't be doing my job as a pastor. After all, my job isn't to keep you entertained. It's to help you grow spiritually. And typically, I think if a pastor can pull that off, if he can keep the congregation challenged spiritually, then the congregation is going to find him interesting. That's sort of the happy medium I've arrived at between speaking truth and being engaging. And I don't think that's a bad place to be because, again, if all I do is get up here and inform you, if all I do is tell you about the Bible without actually challenging you with the Bible, then I'm not really doing my job. I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal like the one that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. So I think overall this is a good thing that I wrestle with this, even if the fear of man part is not. But here's where I've been struggling lately in Philippians. It really comes down to two points. First, our topic currently, at a very broad level, is unity. And that's been our topic going on seven months now, ever since I closed out chapter one. Basically, I feel like I'm repeating a lot of the same ideas in different ways as we're going through these texts, and and I get worried that you all are getting tired of that. And then second, I keep asking myself, how is this subject personally relevant to the members of my congregation? That's what I do just about every week. I get the meaning of the text down. I ask myself, what is this passage saying? And then I ask, okay, now, so what? What How... uh, Why does that matter to this people? And in particular, I try to ask that from your side of the pulpit. I think to myself, okay, so say I'm not a pastor, say I'm a mom facing down a room full of unruly kids Monday morning. How is this passage, this week's passage, going to help me with that? Now, if you think that sounds strange to hear, considering all that we've been talking about over the past several months, then I think you're kind of actually starting to see my point. I keep asking this type of question from week to week with this, the, this passage, these chapters, this book, and week after week I keep struggling to find the answer to that question because I feel like the text is pushing me in another direction. And the result is that I keep turning out these messages that I think honor the intended meaning of the text, but which leave me thinking, they must have been so bored today. They, I'm sure the congregation can't see why we're talking so much about unity. 
And then this week, as I was wrestling with the particulars of this specific passage, it finally hit me. They're asking the wrong question, or I think to be more specific, I'm asking the wrong question for you. See, I had it all lined out. We spent all last week talking about the history of religious conflict since the Protestant Reformation and the impact this has had on philosophical worldviews. And I talked about how reason has replaced revelation as the final authority in our thinking. And I'm saying all that to challenge you to consider whether or not you're following Paul's instructions in this passage and allowing Christ to mediate the conflicts you have with your brothers and sisters. But after it was all said and done, I thought to myself, it's still too distant. I need to bring it closer to home. And I was thinking about how to do that. I was thinking about how I could lead off with this illustration about marriage or something like that and to make these principles more personally relevant. And then it finally hit me. This is part of the problem. I'm asking the question, how is this relevant to me? And that's the wrong question to begin with. Fact is, it's a little different than the person who seeks marital counseling asking, how can I have a happy marriage? And that line of thinking is actually rooted in one of these post-enlightenment worldviews I started talking about last week, uh, one that's actually known as existentialism. If you were here last week, I pointed out that during the Enlightenment, Western civilization tried to turn to reason instead of revelation as the arbiter of truth. Uh, the only problem was that reason didn't work out as well as everyone hoped. Uh, and that was particularly true in the realm of morals, right and wrong. Turns out once you adopt an essentially materialistic worldview, meaning once you accept that there is no God to authoritatively say this is right and wrong because I created you to live like this, it's actually sort of hard to come up with any logically consistent or universally binding system of morality. And it was out of this confusion that existentialism was born. Existentialism basically said that there is no such thing as universal truth, only what is quote-unquote true or meaningful for me. It's actually less about truth and more about value because truth doesn't actually exist in this system. And it asks the question, what do I find valuable or meaningful? And to the existentialist, to live truthfully is to live according to those values. It's basically a form of moral relativism moral relativism. And if you can't tell, it's incredibly consumed with self. What do I think? What is true for me? And if you think about it, that's basically the type of worldview that we're subscribing to whenever we ask this incredibly myopic question, what, how is this relevant to me? And it's not Christian. It's not Christian. According to our take on the world, meaning according to what the Bible tells us about us, man was created in the image of God to display his glory. And so the question that the Christian needs to begin with is the same one that the individual seeking marriage counseling needs to ask themselves, and that's how can I glorify God? How can I take this passage and use what it tells me to the glory and praise of God? That's a subtly different question but one with significantly different results. And it means that, yes, the message should apply to you. We're still talking about personal application, not trivia, but we're taking that application and directing it outward to do that which is pleasing and satisfying to God. And sometimes, 
as we'll see in this morning's passage, this sort of application will include you. It will include you, but the intended object of the application, so to speak, is most definitely broader than you. So before we go any further here this morning, can I just say, if the question that you're asking today is how is this relevant to me, could I encourage you to ditch that approach? Because that's the wrong starting point. It's the wrong question. And if you ask the wrong question, you're going to get the wrong answer. And in fact, I would encourage you to do that generally, not just with this message, but with all the sermons you listen to. Embed this in your thinking. Stop asking yourself simply, how is this relevant to me? And ask instead, how can I use this to glorify God? I encourage you to do that in all the sermons you listen to, but at the very least, start with that question here this morning. Because I think if you're going to take anything away from this morning's message, if you're going to find this message relevant, it really starts here by changing the way you think about the application of God's Word. Today's passage isn't really about you. It includes you, but it's not about you. Today's passage is about us. It's about us collectively as a body. Or to put it another way, this passage may, may help you face down the room of unruly kids on Monday morning. It may help you in your relationship with your spouse, but it's not really about that. It's about the church specifically. And how not just you, but how we together as a church may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not relevant to you per se, but it's relevant to us. And I trust that if you approach this morning's message from that perspective, asking yourself how God can be glorified by what we discover here, then you're going to find this passage incredibly interesting, incredibly challenging. The topic, once again, as it has been for the past several weeks or even months, is the unity in the body of Christ. And most specifically, the question that we're asking right now is, how do we agree with one another? And by this point, I would hope that you all see that this concept matters to God. This is where we actually started in our discussion of this morning's passage. We began with the attitude of gospel-minded agreement, and we saw that Paul approaches disagreement with an attitude of trust, an attitude of unity, and an attitude of urgency. Basically, he takes the history of these two feuding women, and he doesn't automatically assume sin or even unbelief, is the cause of their disagreement. Instead, he assumes that they're approaching the discussion in good faith. And that leads him to conclude that they are still one in Christ, that they are still part of the same team. And this makes their disagreement an incredibly urgent matter in Paul's eyes. He doesn't just ask them to agree. He beseeches or implores them to agree. It would seem that Paul sees this disagreement as problematic for at least a couple of different reasons. First, it disrupts the church's active proclamation of the gospel. Yodi and Syntyche, after all, are co-laborers with Paul. Their example in this respect has probably even led the church to see them as leaders in the local body, meaning the church respects what both of these women have to say. And so for these two women to disagree with each other, it's going to create confusion in the body of Christ and hinder their efforts 
at boldly and clearly proclaiming the gospel to their community. Of course, Paul doesn't want that. Again, he's thinking about the glory of God, and he's seeing that this disunity is going to hinder the church's ability to verbally proclaim the glory of God, and so he urges them to agree. Second, this this disunity disrupts the church's passive proclamation of the gospel. This comes more from the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, but what we've seen is that Paul sees unity in the body of Christ as essential to proclaiming the character of God. It not only reflects his very nature as one God in three persons, but it also reflects the love and grace that he displays to us in Christ. Basically, it seems kind of hypocritical to proclaim a message of peace and reconciliation while being at the throats of the very same people that you're supposedly reconciled to, right? This is part of the trouble with division in the body of Christ. It undermines the verbal proclamation of the gospel through our example. It's like the quote that I shared with you last week by Thomas Manton. Divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. Paul is also concerned about that. And so he urges these women to agree with each other. Ultimately, this is why it's worth spending so much time rehashing this topic over and over again and exploring it from different angles. It's because while the unity of the church may not always seem that important to us, it's important to God. It's relevant to Him. In fact, it's sort of interesting as I was preparing for these messages. I was doing a little research on these various evangelical leaders who later converted to Catholicism. Uh, And I was doing this because when they convert, they'll often point to the disunity among evangelicals as being one of the major reasons for conversion. And I was hoping to use one of these stories to illustrate the terrible impact that disunity has on the body of Christ. Anyways, I can't remember who said it now or even if they were a prominent evangelical leader, but one of these men was talking about his views on justification. And he said that as he read Paul, he not only came to the conclusion that Paul doesn't talk about justification the way that Luther does, but that the issue didn't even seem to be as important to Paul as it was to Luther. He said that instead, when you look at the bulk of Paul's writings, you get the sense that his primary concern was not the doctrine of justification, but the unity of the church. Now, as you can expect, I obviously don't agree with him on what he's saying about Paul and the doctrine of justification. But when I step back and take a broader look at the Pauline corpus, I do sort of understand what he's saying about the importance of unity in Paul's writings. It comes up a lot. In fact, it's interesting, when you really stop and think about it, you'll notice that a lot of the times the reason why Paul brings up the doctrine of justification is because he's using it to argue for the unity of the church. Now, I think there are actually a few different reasons why Paul seems to talk about unity so much, and not all of them have to do with the relative importance of unity. So I don't think we should necessarily interpret the mere repetition of the theme to reflect Paul's feelings on the subject. But all the same, I think we can conclude that he didn't think it was a minor issue either. I think it's important to note this because the truth is we're probably not inclined to think about the unity of the church all that much. We read passages like this one, and we don't really take notice of them. We don't see what the big deal is about the disagreement between Yodia and Syntyche, since it doesn't immediately disrupt our world. 
And that's a problem because if that's how we think about division in the church, if we think it's a relatively insignificant issue, then we're probably not going to be inclined to really do anything about it. And I have to say that's probably a fairly accurate reflection of the church at large, is it not? Division occurs. And when it happens, we don't even make an effort to put a stop to it. We just sit by and watch it happen on the sidelines. Listen, that's bad. That's really bad. What we have to understand is that division in the church hinders the advancement of the gospel on a number of levels, meaning if the question we're asking is, how can I glorify God, then passages like this one are going to matter to us. Unity is going to be up at the top of the list. We need to be actively and aggressively working to be unified with one another. The question is, how do we do that? How do we contend for the unity of the church? And this brings us to our topic for this morning, which is the apparatus, the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement. Disagreement is just another form of disunity. We are all positionally one in Christ, but practically speaking, we don't live according to that reality, and that's reflected by the fact that we don't yet think the same way. So how do we find that agreement? We discovered part of the answer last week when we explored the action of gospel-minded agreement. And that's to agree in the Lord. In other words, if we're going to find agreement with one another, then we can't lean on our own understanding since, number one, our knowledge is finite, our perspective's limited, and number two, even beyond that, our thinking has been corrupted by sin. Basically, if we're only working with the resources that we have within ourselves we're always going to disagree because we're all drawing our conclusions based off of incomplete pictures of reality, all of which are very different. Uh, We only have some of the pieces of the puzzle. They're not the same pieces. But even then, even supposing that we did have the same pieces, we still have a problem because our sin nature is inevitably going to bend and distort what we do know to conform to our own sinful desires. So if we're going to find agreement, then there's only one place we can find it, and that's in the Lord. Not only is Christ our head, meaning not only are we all submitted to the authority of Christ by faith, but He is also a completely authoritative and reliable source of truth. Jesus does know all things. In fact, He is the Logos. By the way, nice shirt today, Aaron. He's wearing a shirt that says Logos. He is the Logos, the very Word of God incarnate. And in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not only this, but he is completely without sin. Meaning we don't uh, have to worry whether or not his thinking is going to be corrupted by sinful desires because he is himself incorruptible. Sin is entirely contrary to his nature. So he not only knows the truth, but he will always tell us the truth. This means that Christ is the only trustworthy mediator of our disputes. So if we're going to find agreement, we need to find it in him. He's our common ground. But here is where we run into the problem. What does that look like practically? I mean, it's all fine and well to say that we should agree in the Lord, and we can understand what that looks like, what that looks like in theory. But how does that work practically? After all, it would be one thing if Jesus was still physically present here on earth because 
then when a dispute arises, we could just ask him, and he could tell us plainly what to do. But he's not here, is he? That day's coming. There's a day coming when Jesus will return and the word of the Lord will go forth from Zion and he will judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away, the scripture says. And in that day there will be peace. The nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. Listen, when Jesus is here, there will be no more division anywhere. Because Christ will be here among us. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will rule in righteousness. What a day that will be. But that hasn't happened yet. Right now he sits at the right hand of the Father waiting for the command to come and establish that day. So what do we do in the meantime? Where do we discover the judgment of the Lord? I'm sure our initial instinct is to say, well, in the Bible. We find it in the inspired Word of God. But whose interpretation of the Bible are we supposed to follow? After all, we said that this is probably the problem facing Yodia and Syntyche. It's not that they're submitting themselves to some authority other than Christ. It's more than likely that they can't agree on how to best interpret the words of Christ. Like I said last week, we all have the pieces to the puzzle that we need in Scripture, and there are passages that function like edge pieces, which can establish clear boundaries for us, which give us a starting point to work with. But getting all the rest of those pieces to fall into place isn't always easy to, to, to do. It takes work. Like we know that murder is wrong, right? That's easy enough to figure out. But what about the, the individual who's in a persistent vegetative state? What about your terminally ill relative with the do not resuscitate order? Is it murder to pull the cord on the brain dead coma patient? Or are you required to save someone's life even when you want they, they want you to let them die? Look, to answer that kind of a question, you have several passages you have to work with at the same time, including the passages that prohibit murder. And getting all those passages to overlap in the right way and connect each other to each other without contradicting each other, all while making sure we haven't misinterpreted any of those passages, that takes skill. I mean, sometimes even establishing the framework you need to make those kinds of decisions can require a lot of knowledge and skill. Staying on the subject of ethics, for instance, do you believe the Bible gives universally applicable ethical commands? Or do you think it provides us only with loose guidelines? If you think it gives us universally applicable commands, does it give us only one or more than one? And if it gives us more than one, do those commands ever contradict each other? And if they do contradict each other, do we have to just accept that, they can't, that we can't always be obedient to Scripture's commands, since sometimes we have two conflicting commands that we can't obey at the same time? Or do you think that some commands override others and... So when we're caught between two conflicting commands, we're only required to obey the greater one. Do you understand how many scriptures you have to hold in your hand at the same time just to answer those kinds of questions? And we haven't even gotten to the discussion of euthanasia just yet. I'm trying to apply the specific scriptures that pertain to that topic, given this framework. 
And this isn't to say that Scripture isn't clear, because it is. I mean, if Jesus were here among us, I have little doubt he could answer all of those questions for us, and he could probably even do it with a couple of insightful statements from a few key verses that would cause the whole issue to unravel in short order, right? He does that often. I'm just saying that we don't share his unfallen mind. The fact is, we encounter the same problems when we come to the Scripture that we do when we try to lean on our own reason. Our personal understanding of the Scripture is very, very finite. Meaning, while the pieces of the puzzle are all there, we don't actually have them all in our mind when we approach these kinds of issues. Or maybe we're missing some of the context that would allow us to properly interpret those pieces. So we start with the wrong hypothesis with one or two pieces, and it messes the whole process up. And not only that, but we come to the Scripture with a sinful heart still, as inclined to distort the text, just twist it and make it conform to our own preconceived conclusions and desires. Essentially, the Scripture is infallible, but our interpretation of it is not. The Scripture is clear, but our thinking is not. So what do we do then? I said last week that this phrase, in the Lord, should push us to discern whether or not our conclusions come from Christ. It should push us back to the Scripture to make sure that our positions are based on scriptural assertions. It should push us to examine our hearts and consider whether or not we're twisting the Scripture to conform to our own sinful desires. But what happens once we do all of that, and we're still convinced that our position is the right one, and our brother or sister who disagrees with us is also convinced that their position is the right one. That's not an easy question to answer. A few moments, moments ago, I mentioned these evangelical leaders that convert to Catholicism on occasion. I want you to understand these are not nominal evangelicals. They know their Bibles and they know church history. They understand why the Protestant Reformation took place. They understand the problems with Catholicism. They even publicly taught against Catholicism, called it a false religion on occasion. But then they convert. What's up with that? Well, a lot of times what they'll tell you is that what got them thinking are the divisions that exist among Protestants. See, again, they're not ignorant. For instance, I mean, one of these converts, Francis Beckwith, he was actually the president of the Evangelical Theological Society when he converted. Guys like him are incredibly aware of the issues I just described and the vast multitude of various positions that exist within Protestantism because of the difficulties entailed in working through these issues. And this gets them thinking, did God really intend this? We say this, that the Scripture alone is our authority, but practically speaking, how does that even work? What does that even mean? Because we can say that the Scripture is our authority, but we can't seem to agree on what the Bible says. And basically, they've lived according to the principles of the Reformation. They've done a serious study of the Scripture. And in the process, they start to sniff out the fact that agreeing in the Lord is not as simple as saying, just do what the Bible says. Because you have very sincere and serious students of Scripture who can't seem to agree on what the Bible says. 
So they realize that there has to be something else that's at work in the process of interpretation. It can't just be the Christian and their Bible, because if all you do is hand someone a Bible and tell them to study it and live according to what they find there, you're going to end up with an exponentially fractured church. Under that scenario, the Christians' theological positions end up being as unique as their fingerprints. No two end up being exactly alike. That gets these men to start reevaluating their starting points about why they believe the things they do and how we can know anything at all, even the scriptures. And in the process, they say, you know, early in the history of the church, the church recognized the authority of Rome. They based this position on the conclusions they drew from scripture. And so the church has decided through collective deliberation that the Pope is the final mediator in the final, in these types of disputes. He is the inspired interpreter of the scripture. And in that system, they find intellectual cohesion. The doctrines that cause Protestants, like you and I, so much trouble, things like the Immaculate Conception and Purgatory and Transubstantiation, which we would say find little to no basis at all in the Scripture, it doesn't bother them. Reason being, they're flat out acknowledging that the Scripture is no longer the sole authority. Instead, they see Revelation as something that's still very much fluid and open-ended. The Spirit guides the church, both through the church councils and through the ex-cathedra statements of the Pope. And through this, he continues to reveal new truths to us or clarify previously unclear truths, much in the same way that the Spirit does as we move from Genesis to Revelation. That makes everything neat and tidy. Disputes and divisions are mediated through the Catholic Church, which operates under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's rather ironic, isn't it? It's almost as if the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture can undermine the, scripture, the Christian's confidence in the clarity of Scripture. What do we do about that? Listen, if it feels like I'm trying to shake your confidence in your ability to really know what the Scripture has to say today, good. It's exactly what I'm trying to do. And again, that's not because the Scripture isn't knowable. The Scripture is knowable. It's just that I tend to think that the method we're supposed to use to know what the Scripture says, the method that actually helps us understand the Scriptures with clarity, isn't the method that most Christians tend to use. And it not only hinders their growth spiritually, it also hinders the unity of the church. And what is it that keeps Christians from using that method that the scripture outlines, I'll tell you in my experience, it's interpretive pride. People are overly confident that the interpretations they arrive at through their own study are automatically the right ones. And I think you can see it come out when they say the path to agreement is to agree in the Lord. And then you say, uh, follow this up by asking, how do you know what the Lord has said? And people answer, well, just read your Bibles. As if that's all there is to it. There can be a subtle pride in the simplicity of that statement, a pride which thinks the Bible is very clear in what it says, it's very easy to understand, the implication being, and I should know, because I understand it. Now again, let me say this one more time so you don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the Bible is not clear. I'm not trying to challenge the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. What I'm trying to challenge is the clarity of your own thinking. 
Or to put it another, another way, it's not the brightness of the moon and the stars that I'm calling into question, it's the smudge on the lens of the telescope. Are you following me here? You should question your own reading of the scripture. That's healthy. In fact, it's not only healthy, it's essential to the method that Paul outlines in this passage for gospel-minded agreement. In case you haven't noticed, we're about three-fourths of the way through this morning's message. This message is supposed to be on the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement, and I've hardly even discussed what the apparatus is. And don't worry, that's intentional. We're not going to complete our discussion of the apparatus today. Instead, what I'm trying to do is set you up for that discussion. One, I want to motivate you to follow through on the method that Paul outlines here because of how essential it is both to the unity of the church and to our own understanding of the Scripture. And then two, I want you to get you thinking about the implications of what Paul says here because truthfully it gets sort of messy. It's just like I said a moment ago, you need to approach this passage with several other passages in your hand at the same time. Because if all you do is take what Paul says here at face value, it's going to leave you with a lot of unanswered questions still. I don't want to leave you with those unanswered questions. And so what I want to do with the time we have remaining is briefly explore what the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement is along with a couple of principles that are attached to that concept. And then next week, I want us to really think through the implications of what Paul is saying here. Because I don't think we consider those implications very often. Again, because we don't typically practice this kind of process in the church. And unfortunately, I think the lack of reflection on these implications has caused a lot of damage to the unity of the church. So what is the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement. That's what we're going to look at this week and then implications next week. All right, what is that apparatus? I don't think it's hard to figure out. I'd imagine you've already worked it out in your head. And it's the church. The church is the instrument that God uses to help believers find agreement in the Lord. You see this come out in verse 3. Paul follows up this exhortation where he urges Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord by saying, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In order to discern the force of Paul's meaning here, you first have to understand the meaning of this phrase, true companion. There's a lot of debate about who Paul's referring to here. The difficulty comes from the fact that while Paul addresses his letter to the entire church at Philippi, back in chapter 1, verse 1, here he speaks of a single, unidentified companion. So there's all kinds of speculation about Paul, who Paul could be referring to. Some think he's referring to Epaphroditus, who's carrying this letter on Paul's behalf which I think seems sort of odd, since, in a sense, the letter is coming from Epaphroditus. And he may even be reading it to the congregation. I mean, why would Paul have to tell Epaphroditus to tell or to help Euodia and Syntyche uh, in the letter when he could have just told him face-to-face, right, back when he was in Rome? Uh, maybe so the church knows to support Epaphroditus' efforts, but even still, if that were the point, I think Paul could have just said that instead of imply it. Others apparently consider Timothy as an option. 
which I think is even weirder, seeing as how Paul says Timothy isn't in Philippi back in chapter 2, and that he hopes to send him soon. Some entertain the option that it's Paul's wife, that these are two women in disagreement, and that he's asking his wife as a woman to get involved and help them come to agreement. And that could be an option if you think that Paul was married. But even if Paul had been married at one point in time, the biblical evidence seems to point to the fact that, at the very least, he's a widower by this point. So that doesn't seem to be a strong option. Others think it's just a prominent leader at Philippi who everyone would recognize as Paul's true companion instinctively. Again, that's maybe a legitimate option. But even still, it's strange that Paul would resort to vaguely worded epithets in the middle of a corporate letter. What would he have to gain from that? What would be the purpose? So who is it? I think there are a couple of strong options, though no position is without its flaws. The first is that this word for companion, which is sizge in the Greek, is actually a proper name. Uh, you may be familiar with the idea that people were sometimes given names that describe their characteristics in Greek society. Uh, you think of Onesimus, for example, whose name means profitable. Or Theophilus, whose name means beloved of God. Uh, of course, you think of Peter, right? Uh, Jesus named Simon Kephas, or Peter, which means rock. Maybe Paul is referring to true or genuine sisge. That's entirely possible. But if so, we have no other record of this person in the rest of the New Testament, which in and of itself doesn't make it impossible. It's just hard to substantiate. The second option is to see this as a reference to the Philippians themselves. Meaning, perhaps Paul is telling all the Philippians, I want each of you to help these women. On the one hand, that would make sense since Paul addresses the, this letter to the Philippians. What doesn't make sense is why he would use the singular here instead of the plural. And I have an answer for that. I think that Paul is doing this for effect because if he just said, I urge you, true companions, plural, help these women, then it'd be very easy for the listener to interpret that command collectively and assume it's the corporate responsibility of the church to help them, not their personal responsibility. In other words, they could say to themselves, okay, Paul wants the, the church to get involved. Well, that's the elder's job, or you know, so-and-so knows them better, so Paul probably intends for them to get involved, not me. And that's not Paul's intent. He doesn't mean for this command to be interpreted collectively, where the corporate body as a whole is on the receiving end of the command. He wants it to be interpreted personally, where each and every individual at Philippi carries the responsibility to get involved and help these women agree. And so he switches up the grammar, and he says, I urge you, true companion, so the people recognize that he's speaking to each and every one of them directly at this moment. And that would seem to fit the general tone of the letter. Paul's been exhorting the Philippians to move and act as one for a couple chapters now. I think that bears itself out in this command. He doesn't want the Philippians to see this disagreement as Yodias and Syntyche's problem or even the church's problem. He wants them to see it as their problem, my problem. So this is the apparatus of gospel-minded agreement. This is how Euodia and Syntyche are going to find agreement in the Lord. It's through the involvement of each and every member at Philippi working together to help mediate this dispute. 
Based on this concept, I think we can discern at least two principles that should be applied to disagreements in the body of Christ, each of which I think looks at this issue from opposite ends of the spectrum. The first principle is corporate involvement. And what I mean is this. The disagreement, and by the way, I'm using that term very intentionally. I'm not just talking about interpersonal disputes. You know, this guy sinned against me and now I don't want to speak with him, that sort of division. I'm talking about disagreements. Not being able to see eye to eye with one another. Having different opinions about important points of doctrine or application. That kind of division. These disagreements are not just between you and whoever you're disagreeing with. Rather, if you can't resolve them, then it's between the two of you and the church. Meaning the church has the right to get involved and mediate a resolution. In fact, it doesn't just have the right to get involved. It would seem it has the obligation to get involved because, again, disunity hinders the gospel and dishonors Christ. That's worth noting because I think that probably cuts across the grain of our culture. That notion rubs us the wrong way. Again, most of us are very individualistic in our approach to our faith. We want to know, how is this passage or this sermon relevant to me? Not how is it relevant to us. We don't see ourselves as smaller members of a larger whole, you know, like a single cog within a larger machine. Instead, we see ourselves as more or less independent entities, and we view our life in the church as just a slice of who we are, like a, like a piece of pie. There are even some who see their relationship with God as, as something that's strictly private. Right? You don't ask about religion. You don't talk about religion because, quote, that's just between me and God. And those ideas aren't completely without any sort of basis. After all, when you stand before God, you'll be cleared or condemned on the basis of your own faith in Christ, not someone else's. Now, Protestants even have a whole concept known as private judgment, which is the idea I described earlier where people act according to the convictions that they personally draw from the Scripture, and it's based on the idea of a person's personal responsibility before God. So this individualism isn't entirely basis. Still, Paul makes it clear that we belong to a body, and that the body has the right to get involved when we can't get along with the rest of its members. That probably strikes us as foreign or even offensive. So it's worth noting this principle, the idea of corporate involvement in our disagreements. The body of Christ is actually supposed to get involved in your unresolved arguments. And then on the flip side, principle number two is individual involvement. So again, corporate involvement and then also individual involvement. That's the second principle. So not only does the body have the obligation to get involved in your disagreements. But listen, you actually have the obligation to get involved in theirs. How does that sit with you? I don't know about you, but at least for me, I would imagine, if I'm thinking about how I think about it, I would imagine that doesn't sit very well. Most of us hate the idea of conflict. In fact, the aversion can be so strong that if some type of actual abuse starts to occur in public, many people would just assume turn their head and pretend they didn't see it rather than try to put a stop to it. 
Listen, what this passage shows us by implication is that this isn't how we approach conflict in the body of Christ. We're supposed to get involved in the disputes of others, even at the level of disagreement. Back towards the beginning of today's message, I said that I had originally intended to frame this passage in light of some disagreement you have with your spouse, but then I backed off of it. And this is why. The disagreement you have with your spouse is a disagreement between the two of you, meaning you're already personally involved in that dispute. What this passage is encouraging is for you to get involved in a, in a disagreement between two other people. You're not already involved, and it's telling you to get involved. You see now why I say this passage includes you, but it's not really about you. Do you see why I say you're not going to think this passage is very interesting if the question you're asking is, how is this relevant to me? The type of dispute that's in consideration here doesn't affect you. Not directly. Meaning it's the kind of fight that could keep on going and you'd never know the difference, personally. And Paul's saying, get involved anyways. Help mediate that dispute. And friends, the only way you're going to care enough to do that is if it's the glory of God that motivates you. Because fact is, you probably have very little to gain in this sort of scenario and a whole lot to lose. But if you're looking at this from the perspective of what's best for the church and what most glorifies the Father, then there's a whole lot to gain here, corporately. And the scars that you'll pick up from running into someone else's fight will be worth it. So I'd encourage you to take this principle to heart. Don't just see the disagreement between a fellow brother and sister as their problem. See it as our problem and get involved. So that's the apparatus. And these are the principles that we should associate with, these, with this instrument. Unresolved disagreements are mediated by the church. And this requires both corporate involvement in your disagreements and your personal involvement in the disagreements of others. Up to this point, the concepts are rather simple. However, I think the question we should be asking at this point is, what does the church's involvement in these disputes look like? Basically, what are the Philippians going to do, and how is their involvement in this dispute going to help Euodia and Syntyche agree? I mean, when Euodia and Syntyche are probably genuinely convinced that they hold the right position, How's the church's involvement going to help with that? Or, or put it another way, why does Paul issue this additional instruction to this entreaty to agree in the Lord? What does the church's involvement do? How does it work? I'll tell you up front, the answer to that question does not come from this passage. But given the importance of this issue to the health and vitality of the church, that's an issue I want to explore with you in depth as much as we possibly can. Uh, I want to do that together with you next week. Let's pray.